We'll begin. Lord Jesus, we just are, are grateful for this day. We're grateful to be able to celebrate uh, your word, to celebrate your presence, to celebrate life, um, to celebrate just the, the beginning that it was on this day so many years ago that you created and rested and that you've given us this time as well. So may we just find rest in your word now and we just want to give you glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, <clears throat> no. Yeah, no. So anyway, um, before we begin singing tonight, I just want to show you this. Uh, George S. Patton, you know, World War II general. He, uh, I love what he said here. The battle is the most magnificent competition in which a human being can indulge. It brings out all that is best. It removes all that is base. All men are afraid in battle. Not some men. All men. Now this is a guy who saw battle. He saw, he saw warriors. And he says, all men are afraid in battle. The coward is the one who lets his fear overcome his sense of duty. Duty is the essence of manhood. Now what I was studying today is I was looking at Corner Fringe and uh, just doing all my own study there in his spiritual Art of Spiritual Warfare Part 10 and this is part of that. And I just thought, man, this, like I said, i got to share. And, you know, I know our family has been so blessed by him. And I, I think you guys have been too in an indirect way because I'm studying so much of what he's doing and relaying it to you. And, um, you know, we were playing and praying for him today, Noah and I, as we came over here and we were praying. And um, I'm just amazed and grateful for people like that who are standing up for truth and being willing to um, rock the world, rock the church a little bit. And what he was talking about here is just assessing soldiers in war. And it stuck out to me because of what we're going on, what's going on in this country, what's going on in my family. I know that, you know, my wife sometimes is a little bit concerned about where we're going in this world right now. And it's easy for us to be afraid. And I've been thinking a lot about that this week. And there were just God has been showing me so many things all around this week. We do not need to be afraid. Okay, we will be. All men are going to be afraid, but we don't need to be. And we need to have courage. And one of the things I was reading this week is where God, and there are many verses in Scripture that say this, where he's going to gather all the nations together. And I thought, oh, that's going to be wonderful. And then I thought, wait a minute. We spend so much time praying that God would preserve this nation. But what we should be praying is God gather us together. From this nation, from that nation, from this nation, that he brings us together. And guess what? We're going to have to go through battle before that happens. But if I tell you, oh, isn't that going to be wonderful when God gathers all the nations together? Oh, man, yes, we can't wait. And then we say, oh, by the way, our country might have to fall before that happens. We're like, oh, no, I don't want that anymore. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, guys. We <clears throat> need to keep the goal, the prize, in focus. And in so doing, that's going to remove a lot of the fear. We need to know what we're fighting for. 
We're fighting for the greatest prize ever, to be with Jesus, to reign with him. And it's like, man, that excites me. But we're so worldly and, and, and operate on the flesh so often that all we can see is what we have to do to get there. Well, don't look at that. Trust that somebody's going to get you through it. Because he will. And so that's one reason that I'm bringing this up here. Because he went through Peter looking at him walking on water. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 30, he says this, When he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. Okay? And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? So the protocol for fear, and, and by the way, one of the things he said, and I thought this is kind of funny, Men, we're pretty macho. We, we don't want to show that we're afraid, right? This must have been terrifying. He's with 11 of his buddies, 11 other men, and they're not afraid to cry out because of this, this storm. So they were scared for their life. And anyway, the protocol is he cries out to God. And everybody kind of throws Peter under the bus with this. Because, oh, ye of little faith. That's what Jesus said. And I never quite looked at it in the way that Daniel had shown, in that this is actually an encouragement. Just kind of like what General Patton said, everybody's going to be afraid. It's okay for you to be afraid. It's natural to be afraid. And we're going to see just about everybody in Scripture is afraid at times. But... Jesus even said that if you have faith of a mustard seed, ye of little faith, you can move mountains. The key is, is to have that faith. And to know it is okay to be afraid, but we're not going to reside and rest in that. And so this isn't a rebuke. I don't think Jesus is rebuking him here. This is, if anything, an encouragement. Matthew 14, 32, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So they, that means Jesus walked on that water with him. He got out there a little bit, everything's fine till he starts sinking, now he's afraid. And we see Jesus must have probably grabbed him by the hand or whatever, and, and you can just picture them walking back. And I just think, what comfort Peter must have had at that moment walking back to the boat. Noah and I were talking a little bit about this earlier today too. And, and one of the things that I thought was kind of cool is we were talking about Peter getting out of that boat to begin with. What was going through his mind? Was he thinking, I wonder if I can do this? No. He had his eyes so fixed on Jesus. I don't even think he thought about that. And some of the things that I'm not talking about here is... Peter, he says, command me to come to you. Peter had the faith that all you have to do, Lord, is tell me to come and I, and I can do it. And it's kind of, that's the way it is with us, is that we have to just look at God's commands. And if God commands us to do it, there it we can walk on water when we obey his commands. We, we, we can do amazing things. 
But there's a storm going on. And what's kind of crazy to me is that we see a storm on the horizon in this country. And we need to be like Peter and be willing to engage that battle. Engage by getting out of the boat, out of our comfort zone, and be willing to go to Jesus. I don't remember, do you remember what we were, how we were kind of talking about this before? I just... Just the idea that the, the 11 that were in the boat, their natural response would have been like, get, Jesus, get in the boat. What are you doing out there? Come, come to us. But the idea that Peter loved Jesus so much that he didn't ask, they did not just wait for Jesus to get in the boat, but that Peter wanted Jesus so much that he went after him and said, I don't care if I have to walk across the water to get to you. I want to be where you're at. Yeah. And, and I love that. Because that's what we're kind of like, God, come to us, come save us through this COVID stuff, through what's going to happen in this country. And what we should be doing is saying, God, we're coming to you. We're coming. And I, I like that. I like that attitude of not waiting for him to come to us. So, anyway, one of the things he said is this, too. All, are you, all of you are called to be great, or to do great things. Well, if you don't receive your call to do great things, you'll never be great. In other words... God has called us to do great things, but if we don't do those great things, you will never be great. You know, I think that we in this society for a long time have been focused on us and the world and how we can build our kingdom here. And this is not home. This is not what God has called us to do. This isn't the great thing on this world that God has called us to do. He brought in a great verse here, Daniel 11.32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. And then look at this. But the people who know their God, that's you, that's me, shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Now, by the way, the context of this, if you go read Daniel 11, this is talking about this time of really the end and the Antichrist, this, this man of lawlessness, the, the people who are going to follow him, and then you've got these people who know their God. And what are they going to do? Great things. Great exploits. We should be focused on that. Can you imagine what we may be able to see here soon, even on this earth, as God's going to move heaven and earth for you? Because he promises he's going to be there. And so as a result, I, I think that we can be excited to see God. We're going to see you move. Maybe even while I'm dying, being persecuted, I'm going to see you move. That's exciting to me. And so this is a promise of God here. The people who know their God, they're not dabbling with it. The ones that really know God, they're going to be strong and they will carry out great exploits. I love that. Well, here's why I wanted to do this, and I've kind of talked about this in another lesson, but when we talk about the coronavirus and, and all the praise being stopped, 
But I want to look at it here real quick before we sing. Here's King Jehoshaphat, a righteous man. And he's going out to battle. And look what it says. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria. And they are in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. So he wakes up one morning, everything's fine. When he went to bed, he gets up, and now somebody's saying, There's a huge army coming to attack. It goes on, verse 3, Jehoshaphat feared. A godly, righteous man, and he's scared. <clears throat> Guys, it's okay to be scared. But what's the protocol? Just like Peter, you cry out to God. He set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Guys, that's what we said here. You know, we've been talking about that a lot. Fasting together as a group. Every Wednesday I'm fasting because there's stuff happening. I'm proclaiming we need to fast because there's stuff coming. The army is coming. And it says, So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. The same pattern. You're fearful. What do you do? You cry out to God and you just keep doing that until you find an answer. Continues in verse 12. Our God, oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do. Sound familiar? If you're like me and you see that there's something coming in this country, I realize I have absolutely no power. I am helpless. I don't even know what to do to prepare for it. Outside a cry out to God. But that's all we need to do. But our eyes are upon you. There's your answer. Cry out to Him. Fix your eyes on the Lord and wait to see what he's going to do. What great exploits are coming. Verse 15. He said, "Listen all of you, listen all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God." If you watch the my art of spiritual warfare kind of thing that I've taken on the Patreon thing. I talk about this, that when we fight, we fight God's battles, not our battles. And as long as we're fighting His battles, there is victory, guaranteed. It's when we try fighting our own battles and tell God which battles we want Him to fight that we get into trouble. But anyway, jumping to verse 17. You will not need to fight in this battle. Now, if that is an encouragement, I don't know what is. Guys, this is, we're, we're, we're facing a battle. It's coming. We don't need to fight this battle. We only watch God fight it. Because it's His. And here's what hit me on this today. Why I thought, I'm going to share this. Position yourselves. Stand still. Does that, ring, does that remind you of anything, just out of curiosity? Okay, that's better than what I had. Go ahead. Be still and know that I'm God. Yep. Okay. Yep. Exodus, same thing. See. Yeah, that spiritual armor. 
All of those are better than my answer. Okay. It made me think of that guy's dream. Brace yourself. Brace yourself. Brace yourself. Here's what God's coming, and what does he say? Position, position yourselves. Stand still. That sounds like brace yourself. And it hit me. I thought, that's what God, I believe, God told that Pastor Dana. And it's like, whoa, it just kind of hit me there. Position yourself. Brace yourself. Stand still. Watch God work. But it's like even in Isaiah, it says, unless your faith is firm, I can't make you stand firm. So unless you have faith built on something, God cannot make your faith firm. Yeah, but that's yeah. Exactly what I say is talking about. yeah, we and that's why I think we're preparing in our fasting and our praying. We are, we're learning to stand. We're learning to brace ourselves and stand still and be able to be immovable when the world comes at us to watch God work. If we don't have that, when the battle comes, you're going to be weak. You're not going to be able to stand strong. <clears throat> So that's, that, that part just jumped out at me today, thinking, boy, that's exactly what I feel God has been telling that pastor. So, yeah, Joel, brace yourself like a man. God's coming, and it's okay to be fearful. I mean, I think Job, Job was scared when the Lord came before him as well. So, moving on here, position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. Guys, I can't find a greater verse to give you encouragement than that right now to say, wow, come Lord Jesus, come. Bring it on, because this isn't my battle, this is yours, and I am willing even though there may be fear about some things, I'm going to cry out to you, and I'm going to stand still. It says, O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And it goes on in verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Now notice, they haven't been delivered yet. And what do they do? They worship the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord of Israel with voices loud and high. What's the answer to your fear? Sing loud. Sing high. I don't think that means like this. But... <laughs> But sing loud, lift your praises to God. And this is the kind of focused worship and praise. And I thought, you know, before we sing tonight, I want you to think about this. We're getting ready to go to battle. Many of us are unsure. We don't know what to do. Well, here's the answer. And 
it goes on, they rose early in the morning, went out in the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God. Faith, you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. Note, he didn't just say, believe in the Lord. Don't have faith, but have faith in what? Believe the prophets, he even says. In other words, the word of God. We have all kinds of promises that we can stand on. And so, as we praise, believe those promises. Okay, um, remember, Peter says this. He says, no prophecy of itself ever had its origin in the will of man. Instead, men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they prophesied. In other words, it's not... Peter's word, it's not man's word, it's the words of the prophets. And so believe in that. Second Chronicles 20, verse 21 continues, when he had consulted with the people, <clears throat> he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Again, they didn't send out the cavalry against this. The people they send out first, ahead of the army, are the singers. And to me, that's what we need to do. We need to be praising God because we're sending out the heavenly angels, the heavenly army going out ahead of us to protect us. Maybe, maybe not this whole country, but maybe your family, maybe this group, I, I, I don't know, but I know that God's going to fight for us. I mean, what did they do at Jericho before the walls came down? They shouted. Okay, I, I don't think they were just shouting nonsense. I think they were shouting to God, calling out to him. Just a couple more real quick things here. Psalm 100, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all ye land. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Verse 4, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. This is our power right here, guys. This is powerful stuff. I was just telling somebody today, we went to Brian Anders' funeral. I have never felt such a moving thing as that blessing at the end. Oh my goodness, I wish everybody here could have been there to, to hear that. I couldn't help but cry. I, I mean, it was powerful. I can't even tell you about it because it wouldn't do it justice. But there was, oh man, I, I was ready to, take me now, Lord. I am so thrilled. I just want to be in your presence. It was, that will be a core memory for the rest of my life, that closing song. Amazing. That's this right here. That is power, folks. So what's the result? When they began to sing and to praise, what did God do? Not after they were done. When they began to sing, the Lord set ambushes. Guys, as we praise the Lord here right now, I'm telling you, I believe that God is sending out his angels and he's doing some prep work. The hornet is going out ahead. 
to be not just our rear guard, but the one that goes out ahead of us. And so we're going to sing some songs. All right. Well, now I'm ready to begin. So, yeah. <laughs> well, we are uh, doing part 19 here. Um, we are in chapter 8, and we've been introduced last week to the, uh, the temple. We talked about how he says there's, this is an old temple. It's an obsolete temple, and the people who are now making sacrifices at that temple have to be going, what? What are you talking about? And the, the temple's over there. I just made sacrifices this morning. And he's saying, no, there's a new priest in town. There's a new temple there's a new mediator, all into talking about Yeshua Jesus. And just for the sake of those listeners here, I do need to just kind of show you, if people want to join Patreon, they can. Here it is, so I'll call that good. Anyway, we were introduced to the Old and the New Covenant. Hebrews has been going through that, showing that the New Covenant is so far superior to the old. And we talked about how it isn't a renewed covenant, it is a brand new covenant. And we're not going to get into a whole lot of this, but just to show you some of the framework that has been changed. That under the old or the new, you had every one of these things here in the center. You had a priesthood. But we now went from Aaron to Melchizedek, Yeshua. Okay, you had a mediator, someone who would go on behalf of you to the Lord because you couldn't get to the Lord and we needed somebody kind of in between. Now in the Catholic Church today, we have people who think that's what Mary is in a sense. Mary is that kind of in between, go between, between you and God. Wrong. Timothy says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus, the man Yeshua. Okay? It's more like an idol than a yeah, it is more than an idol than a mediator, absolutely. Uh, we saw that the law had been changed. Okay? There was a law under both, but the law itself hadn't changed, but rather the, lo the location of the law changed from stone to now on the heart. But those Ten Commandments, the law of God, still is legitimate, it's still valid, thank you, I couldn't think of the word, but it's in our hearts. The condemnation went away. And we talked about the temple, that physical building versus now we become the temple. And then obviously the sacrifices, the day-to-day, year-after-year versus one time, once for all in Yeshua. And so those are some of the, the things that he's comparing here in Hebrews from the old and the new. But we're going to look here at this priesthood and to have a relationship with the Lord, you have to have a priest. You ever thought about that? This is the way it has always been in, in really any religion. If you want a relationship with this amazing creator God or whatever God you will have, even a false religion, they usually have some priest, some guy that you have to go to in order to 
have that relationship with this higher being God? Well, the truth of the matter is, yes. In the Old Testament, that's the way it was. You had to go to Aaron, to the priests, to get to God, right? And so this priesthood is very important. We even see at the very beginning, Moses was that mediator between God and man. And I am very impressed with Moses as a mediator. You couldn't find a better one. And you might have heard in my message on the Garden of Eden, uh, I think part five, maybe I don't remember, but the message on the Garden of Eden, I talked about how Adam... We have thrown Adam under the bus for years and years and years. That idiot ate from the tree. And I no longer believe that at all. I think that he willingly, I don't think, I know, he willingly ate of that fruit. Because Timothy says, Adam was not deceived. You cannot get around that. I think it's 1 Timothy chapter 5, maybe verse 20, I don't know, but... Bottom line, it says, he was not deceived. If he was not deceived into eating the apple, it meant he did it willingly. Now, you're going to have to go listen to the message to get the whole thing, but the bottom line is, Eve fell into sin, and he, I believe, was a mediator for his wife, for his bride. A picture of what Christ is going to do, a picture of what Moses does, a picture of what Paul, even in some senses, tries to do. What do I mean by that? Moses. All the people rebel against Moses. He goes up on the mountain. Okay? They've been nothing but problems for him. God gives him the Ten Commandments. He comes down the mountain, and all these troublemakers now have built this golden calf, trying to worship it, and God says, get away from him. I'm going to kill him. I'd have been like, thank you, Lord. Finally, you have come to rescue me. Okay? These guys, you know, I knew you'd come to my, my defense one day. But no, he says, no, Lord, blot me out of the book of life. I'm like, what? Moses, what are you thinking? And not only did he say that I was going to like destroy them, but I was going to bless you. I mean, you just won the lottery. And Moses still says, no, Lord, no, 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 no. Blot me out. Don't let them die. I'm like, that is incredible. I think that's what Adam did. Paul says the same thing in Romans. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own brothers, the people of Israel. What? He didn't say, I wish I myself could get a spanking or I myself you know, might lose my house. Cursed and cut off from Christ. That is eternal damnation. I got to tell you, I don't have that attitude. I wish I did, but I don't have it. That's a mediator. That's what Jesus did for us. He says, no, God, do not, do not let these people die. I'll give my life. As a, you know, a lamb was led to the slaughter, so was Jesus. He, he silently went to the cross, willingly gave his life to save yours. That's the kind of thing. When I say mediator, that's not just a word. I want you to think about what that means, the perspective here. That's the kind of thing in the New Testament. Moses didn't have to go to hell. Moses didn't have to go on the cross. Yeah, he had a lot of troubles in life. 
but Yeshua to save, to, to live up to his name, the Lord saves. He not only went to the cross, he descended into hell. He, he why, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of those things, that's a mediator. And so a big difference, I can see why this is better, the new, than the old. Not to mention, like I said, once for all, not day and day after day after day. In the Old Covenant, Moses was given the law. There's a law in both of these covenants. In the New Covenant, the same law is there. But now he says, I'm going to put my laws on their minds and write them in their hearts. Jeremiah 31 talks about this New Covenant. He doesn't get rid of the law. He changes its location. Okay. Um, but in a covenant, not only must you have a priest, you must have a law. That's very important. Because, guys, we are in a new covenant. You cannot have a covenant without a law. Jesus even says the law of Christ. Okay, I think the churches have kind of slaughtered what that means. In the law of Christ means, no, we're no longer, there is no law. That's not what he's saying. Okay, we've talked about that before, so I don't need to hash it over again and again. But Hebrews consistently keeps going back to that. But let's look at how this, as we said before, God can change things, but only if he already told us he was going to. But the church has kind of done it this way. So, well, in the old, that's obsolete. And now we've got this new thing that has never been talked about before. It's a brand new thing. We've never, you know, had any idea that it was coming. That's not true. Or else Paul would have been stoned, or whoever the author of Hebrews is, would have clearly been stoned talking about the things he's talking about. Ezekiel 36, 27 is one of those little gems, those little hidden treasures that he was pointing out that he's quoted before showing you that no there is a precedence here God said this was coming I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them this is talking about the new covenant does that sound like God got rid of the law that he got rid of all of his statutes that he predicted? No. If anything, he's saying, I will put my spirit in you, which is exactly what happens in the new covenant. But what is the goal of that? So that you're going to walk in his ways, walk in his statutes, obey him. Oh yeah, you, you're going to fail. We all do. But the condemnation is now gone. Praise the Lord. So, you're going to keep my judgments and do them. Joel 2, 28, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. I'm trying to figure out if I'm a dream or vision person. I'm not sure yet. Um, yeah, yeah, there you go. So old women don't have to do that. Yeah, so I'm not sure what the... What the yeah. 
Um, Wait a minute. Oh, you. Oh, I get it. It's a joke. You were like about. You yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's a joke. <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was a joke. Yeah. So, Isaiah eight sixteen. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. Guys, the law has not been taken away. He has sealed it on our hearts and in our minds. And as a Christian, one who loves Jesus and is not condemned and bound by that law, let me tell you, I understand what this means. I love the law of God. Love it. Not condemned by it. I love to serve my master. I love to serve the one I love. I mean, think about it. Your kids, a mother... The things they do for their kids and serving it. And you know what? They do it, for the most part, joyfully, don't they? I know that there are those days. But they love to please their children. Okay, yeah. I've got a lot of yeah, going on around here. <laughs> I think that's more true the older your children get. I think that yeah, it is wiser. The yeah. older they yeah. get, the more you love to serve them. Mm-hmm. But the, the point being, though, is there is no question. <laughs> There's no question that I, I enjoy doing what pleases God. Okay? It's a joyful thing, not this, you know, oppressive. If that's what the law is to you, then you don't understand the law. You still understand the old way, the written stone stuff. You don't understand the heart stuff. And so the law isn't the problem. You're the problem. I mean, that's the truth. Ephesians 1.13 In Him you also trusted, speaking of Jesus Yeshua, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So how does God seal us? The Holy Spirit of promise. What did Isaiah say he was going to do? Bind up the testimony. He's going to take the law of God, he's going to bind it up. How? He's going to seal it on your hearts. He's going to seal his disciples. So this is the exact same word. When you look at the Greek Septuagint, when we go here to Ephesians, this is what he's saying. Now, in the New Testament, he's referring back to Isaiah and saying, I'm going to seal my word, my laws in your heart through the Holy Spirit. Because he is a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. He bought us with his blood. And that spirit that is now in you, that law that is in your heart that you have a desire to follow, that is a seal. It is written on your heart. You've been tattooed by God. It's the only tattoo I like. Okay. Sorry, Mark. Sorry, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> um, but notice that this is also what? To the praise of His glory. Guys, there is no question we can know that we are saved under the new covenant. How do you know? 
Well, the scriptures tell us we know that you know God if you do what he says. I mean, that's scripture. But yet I say that in church today, and all of a sudden, oh, legalist. You're a legalist. You're talking about that law again. Yeah, so does Jesus all the time in the New Testament. <laughs> I am saved because I love God's word. I know what's in my heart. And that isn't even of me, it's of him. 2 Corinthians 3, 2. You are our epistle written in our hearts. Well, what do you think? Is he just making stuff up here for the first time? Or do you think he's actually referring to the scriptures that I just showed you in the Old Testament? Yeah, he's pulling from Ezekiel 36 here. He knows what, what God had promised in the old, under the old covenant, saying, hey, there's something better coming. And the better is I'm going to take this from stone and I'm going to write it on your hearts. Known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but, on, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. Does that sound like God got rid of the law? Doesn't sound like that at all, does it? And yet we're in the New Testament. That is of the heart. Okay. This is exactly what Ezekiel 36 was telling us. This is exactly what Isaiah 31 is talking about in the New Covenant. And this is exactly what they are quoting. Verse 4, we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God. Who, is all, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. How many times have we heard that? The letter kills. Oh, see, the law kills. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, now that gives life. Well, how? By writing that same law on our hearts. Not that you have to obey it. See, you have no sufficiency in yourself. Not that you're able to obey it all. But that you will have a desire to obey it. And when you realize you screw up, there's no condemnation. Thank you, Jesus, for the forgiveness but clearly, in the New Testament here, can you see how the church has twisted this? To say that the letter kills, the Spirit gives life, so don't talk about the law anymore. The whole context is talking about it is the Spirit that has put the law in our hearts. It is the Spirit that empowers us to, to even obey that law. It's not my sufficiency, it's, it's from Him. And so now, I no longer live in the flesh, and of the old, I now live in the spirit and of the new. It's just, to me, it's so clear everywhere I go. Galatians 3.21 is the law then against the promises of God. Well, that's kind of almost what the church has made it sound like. Mm -hmm. Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. 
Here's the other thing. Most Christians today think that in the Old Testament, you know how you were saved? By obeying the law. The Jews never even believed that. David never taught that. They knew that you were saved by God and him alone and him taking your sin. Those sacrifices, they knew that was a picture. They know that's a picture even of the Messiah. They just missed that Jesus was the Messiah. They just, they don't quite get it, a lot of them. But the law was never intended to get you to heaven, ever. I mean, I think God knew that people weren't going to be able to keep it. So why would he give you something to get to heaven knowing that you'll never be able to do it? Matter of fact, the Bible says the law was added because of trespass, because of sin. To make sin utterly sinful. It, to, to show you your need for something greater than your obedience. Because you can't do it. He says in verse 22, But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So, basically it's asking if the law is against the new covenant. And the answer? No, the law is not against the new covenant. Let that sit in. So again, I may not be, I'm still not going to be perfect in the flesh, but in the spirit, Christ has made me a saint. Because there's no condemnation. My heart has been sealed by the Spirit, guaranteeing, it's a deposit guaranteeing until He returns. I am now His. And I know I'm His because I love Him. I love His Word. By the way, you know what part of His Word is? The law of God. Well, there's an, something like along those lines. <laughs> I think that we hear that a lot. I mean, Romans kind of says, I would not have known what sin was had the law not said, Maybe you know, do not covet. Yeah. Okay. I think there's an aspect, because that's also what Romans says, is that the law was added to make sin utterly sinful. I think it does reveal, it is like a mirror, as we've heard it said, to, to reveal to us <clears throat> our ugliness of the flesh. Yeah, However... We also see that Romans says this, that my conscience will bear witness against me on the day of judgment because God has written his law on our hearts and in our minds so that we have a... The very word conscience is two words, con, which means with, science, knowledge. So when you have a conscience because you're doing something that you shouldn't do, that means when you break that conscience, you are doing with knowledge that you are breaking God's commands. So he, he's put it in us right from the beginning, the ability to know right and wrong. You don't have to teach your kids selfishness. Right? They're born with that. You don't even have to tell them that it's wrong to kill their brother or their sister or their mother or their father. They know that's wrong, even without some written rule you know, on your refrigerator. By the way, don't kill mom. Okay. <laughs> it, what happens to the brains of these people in this strange 
thing that's going on in the world with these. Timothy says this, that their conscience was seared as with a hot iron. When you continue to rebel against God's law, against His word, what happens? You continue to do it until your conscience is seared, and there is a time that God will pull that away, and you're not, you won't even be able to repent. See, I believe that I can't even believe without Jesus, without God drawing me to do that, which I think is why in Revelation we're seeing what we're kind of seeing right now in our society. You can have the most logical, reasonable, scientific proof of something. And they don't see it. Yes, I guess, yeah. Because it's spiritual. Well, are they, like, do they have demons in them or something? I mean, Yeah, like, their conscience is seared. When we read in the book of Revelation, I don't remember if chapter 16, 18, whatever, what we see is all these terrible things come upon them. And what does it say? And they still would not repent of their deeds. And you think, how? You even see God coming. They hide in the caves to get away from Him. They know there is a God, but they still will not repent. Why? It's too late. That 11th hour has come. It is too late. And God is no longer going to be holding His hand out to them. It's judgment day. Is it, can you compare it equally to like Pharaoh and his heart was hardened? Yeah, that's the yeah. thing. He just kept seeing and seeing and seeing. I mean, well, and you see the Lord, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it says the Lord hardened his heart. So there's a progression there for sure in, in Exodus. That helps me with that. Yeah. I always thought God just didn't like him. Yeah. No? I know, that's what happened. That, I always had trouble with that. So that progression, you think like in Romans 1 where Paul's talking like this is that all creation clearly points to God and his attributes, but yet then like in 2 Thessalonians he goes in talking about that God gives him a strong delusion. Is that similar to like Pharaoh hardening his heart but then I think not so. hardening his heart? Because I mean it seems to me in Romans that none of us are without excuse. I mean I know when I was living in sin, it was still wrong. I didn't yep. necessarily know the law of God, but I knew it was wrong. You know, um, yeah, Ray Comfort's great about talking about that. Like, I don't believe in atheists. He, you know, I think he wrote a book about that. There's no such thing as an atheist. They know God exists. They just refuse. And like you said, Romans says that, that how is that worded? That the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That means they know it. They're just sweeping it under the rug. They don't want to deal with it. We're just going to ignore it. I'm going to pretend it's not there. What did you just quote? Romans 1. I can't tell you what verse. Maybe around verse 20, 18. Probably 18. Yeah, there's something inside yeah. you that just doesn't like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Or at least it shouldn't. Well, <laughs> I mean, unless you have buck fever and then you're like all excited. And like, I can't wait it's to still there. Again. It's still there. So those people, these people in the world, they once had hope, but now they... I mean, they're so going to stop and appreciate that. They're so serious. What was that, Deb? Well, I'm sorry. I just keep trying to figure out these people that are doing these awful things. It's like... Be glad you can't no figure brain. it out. Be glad you can't figure it out, because... If you could, then your mind is with us. our sin by saying, well, there is no eternity, there is no God. I've told myself that lie long and often enough, and I started to believe it. And so, therefore, what does it matter if I go out there and do whatever debauchery or... Well, then that whole thing about God, God finally hardens. Yeah. That yeah. kind yeah. of helps me wrap my head around it. Like, well, some yeah. of those people are willingly asking demonic stuff right. to come upon them too. So yeah. it's not that they just even turn away from God. They're like asking for it. Or they've been full to the dark side. Right. Well, and <laughs> you have to realize that these people hate God. So and that's demonic. why they're actively going against him. Remember, we were talking, Revelation 5 seems to suggest there's over 100 million angels. We talked about this before. And a third of those have been gone out of heaven. And what do they want to do? They want to go after you, mankind, to destroy mankind. You think a third of a hundred million? Huh, what? There's. I get, I'll do the math. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's a lot of people, considering there's what? Think of it this way there's only about 330, 330 million people somewhere in there in the United States. That are fallen angels. No. No, no people no. in the in the United States, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It, what did you say? 100 billion, one third of it. I, I know it's 33 million, 300,000, 300, 300, 300, 300, 300, 300, 300, 300, 300, 300, What's one third of 100 million? But it's 33 points. Might as well let them finish their math. They're not going to listen until the math is done. <laughs> Technically, yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know, I guess, what's your thoughts on that? Like, if the third of the angels haven't been swept, how, like, is this other demonic warfare? I mean, I totally believe in spiritual principalities and demonic warfare, but is it the angels that have been swept we down? We talked about this a little bit last week. Yeah. Um, I must have fallen asleep. Not here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the sense that you have yeah, two things. You have... Fallen angels, but you also have all the, the evil spirits, the the product of the the nef, you know the nephilim and all of that. So there's two different things there. Yeah. Well, I'm going to continue on this so that I don't uh, get too far off track. Second Corinthians three seven continues here. Um, if the ministry of death 
Okay, again, and the church picks up on that. See, that Old Testament stuff, that is all bad. The law is bad. But it says, it was written on engraved on stone. So we know we're talking about the law here, right? He says, does he call it bad? No, he says it was glorious. Even that was glorious. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? I love this. This is amazing to me because it's the law that he's talking about that was a ministry of death, but he still calls it glorious. You couldn't be more negative about it. A ministry of death? But you have to understand that the context is with it being under the old covenant, not the new covenant. So to say the commandments themselves are death, I mean, just think how, just you want to talk about logic and reason with the, even in the church. To say that the commandments are bad, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, honor your father and mother, you know, don't worship idols. I mean, go down the list. What is so bad about that? To tell people, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What is really so bad to tell people that? Oh, you must be one of those Hebrew root people. Oh, you're trying to be a Jew? You're trying to you're, you're trying to keep one of those Ten Commandments? You know you can't keep those. I mean, how many times? Well, you, you, maybe you don't hear those things, but I hear those things. <laughs> okay, it, it doesn't make sense to me. There's no reason logically to say that this is a bad thing. Well, when Paul says only the doers of the law will be saved, Romans 6, it's not those who hear the law that will be declared righteous in God's sight. It is those who obey the law that will be declared righteous. That's Paul, New Testament, Romans. Okay? Romans 8 says the perverse mind or the mind of the flesh, the sinful mind, cannot please God. It does not subject itself to God's law. So if the sinful mind cannot subject itself to God's law, let's use logic. What mind does subject itself to God's law? The non-sinful mind. The mind of the spirit. The whole thing in Romans keeps kind of talking about, you know, being living in the flesh or living in the spirit. Okay? So the sinful mind does not submit itself to God's law, nor can it do so. My mind does. I submit myself to God's law. That is just the logical reasoning of what Paul says there. So, again, the context of the ministry of death is all under the old covenant when the condemnation of that law was there. And now the condemnation has been removed and is placed on our hearts. But don't forget the law is in both covenants. Now, it continues. For if the ministry of condemnation, we've heard it the ministry of death, now it's a ministry of condemnation. Before he said it was glorious and now he's saying it had glory. Then the ministry of righteousness, the new covenant, 
exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect. In other words, the law in the Old Covenant had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. You compare it to the New Testament, had no glory. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. So again, we see the church today saying, oh, what was passing away? See, the law passed away. No! What passed away? Really, the condemnation of the law. Because think about, well, it's going to come here, so I won't jump ahead too far. But basically, now that the new covenant is coming into view, it doesn't compare to what they had in the old. It was passing away. It's what Hebrews called it, obsolete. The letter on stone is obsolete. Not the letter, not the law, but the location. It continues, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. You ever wonder about that story? What was that all about, that Moses' face was shining when he came down the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments? Yeah, I mean, it's the glory of God. Just what he was saying, if that, even in the old, was glorious, it had glory... Moses, though, when he went before the people, what did he do? He put a veil over his face so that the people could not see what? The glory of the law. Right? And this is the part that I love. The people were terrified. You, you go read it there in Exodus 34. We see that when they see Moses' face, they're scared. And so Moses has to put this on to veil the glory and to keep them from freaking out and, you know, messing their pants or something. Okay? So, he was dropping the veil to protect them. But here's where it gets good. Verse 14, but their minds were blinded. Who's, who's there? The people, the Old Testament people that were there where the veil had to be gloried. Or the veil, glory had to be veiled. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Again, how many times have you heard this verse used in reference to, well, anytime you read the law, that same, the veil remains, you can't see Christ anymore. That is not what this is saying in the least. Let's dissect this a little bit. Until this day, the same veil remains. The veil did what? It shielded the glory of the law. It still remains in the reading of the Old Testament. When you're reading Moses, the law, the prophets, why? Because the veil is taken away only in Christ. Now that we have Christ, and that law is placed in our hearts, the veil is lifted so that we can now do what? See the glory of the law. If you don't know Christ, 
There is no glory in that law. There's only condemnation. There's only, yeah, I need to protect you. But when you become a believer in, in Yeshua, the veil is removed so that we see the glory. And it's even more glorious because of Christ, because the condemnation has now been taken away. And I love the law. I love His Word. And, and that's what I love about this story. Something that the church has just completely twisted and, and just thrown in the garbage disposal and made it absolutely not what it's saying in the rest of Scripture. When you really look at it in connection with the old and the new, all the prophecies of what Jesus said is coming, it now makes sense. Ah, I have the Spirit, I have Christ. And so now I see the glory. There's no need for a veil anymore. So that's where verse 15 and 16 come in. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on the heart. Nevertheless, here's the change. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So, right now, I can go down the street and I can preach Moses, I can preach the law, I can preach the Ten Commandments. And it says, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Ray Comfort, he's going to go out on the streets. What does he do? He gives them the law of God. What happens? There's a veil that remains on their heart. They feel condemnation. They feel scared. They feel like, I'm going to hell. Nevertheless, when they repent and they turn to Christ, condemnation removed, oh, I'm not going to hell. The law has lost its power to destroy me. That's all this is saying. So, when we know Christ, we look at the Old Testament and the law differently than, say, an Orthodox Jew. We both have the same law, don't we? But they have it under the Old Covenant still. And that law is a veiled glory to them. Me, same law. It's an unveiled glory. So, does that make sense? Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, not condemnation, not oh, legalism, that everybody thinks that I am such a legalist because I love the law. Okay, remember, it's the Spirit that wrote on our hearts. Keep in mind, this is the context of everything we've been reading here is about that old covenant, the law, and, and being written on our hearts. And now he's saying, now... The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, in our hearts, He just told us that, there's liberty. There's freedom. And liberty does not mean the law is gone. It now means the condemnation is gone, and it's now remaining in my heart, but with glory. Verse 18, But we all, with unveiled face, because of Jesus, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now, what did he just tell us was the glory? The law. He just told us the law was glorious. It had glory. You want to see the glory? Remove the veil. Come to Jesus. And so now he's saying, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. We're seeing the law, the word of God. 
and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So that's the Shekinah? Um, in a sense, it is. The, the, the Shekinah or Shekinah glory of God was basically that cloud. In the Old Testament, that's what they saw. The presence of God was in that cloud that would come at the temple. It would lead them. Okay, uh, They knew where to go, when to go, when to stop. And so today, yeah, that has now the Spirit of God is in us. And so we listen to that Spirit. So, so where there is liberty, let me just show you here John 4.24. There is no debate here. When it talks about the Spirit, the Spirit is Jesus, the Spirit is God. God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and truth. So, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. In other words, where God is, okay, the Spirit is in us. We worship in spirit and truth, meaning when I look at the law, I need to look at it through spiritual eyes, not veiled eyes, like an Orthodox Jew looks at the law. I look at it differently. Frankly, I think there's a lot of people in the churches today who look at the law as an Orthodox Jew does. Even though they have Christ, they just don't get it yet. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Again, this isn't the Old Testament. These kind of verses don't make any sense with the modern churchianity of today. The message that is preached in most churches. This is kind of like what I was saying to you guys before. You know, all the rumors that, oh, yeah, Brian's doing this Hebrew root thing. No, I'm not. I'm doing a biblical thing. I'm just obeying God's word. There, that's not a Hebrew root thing. It's a John 14 thing. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I don't want to get too far off track here, but guys, you know, some of these prophetic ministries that are out there, and I see that they don't even follow God. I mean, they're not godly people. It's like, why would God speak to them? Why would he manifest himself to them? My corona message, I have posted part three. I've got part four ready to post, but I'm kind of having a hard time pushing the send button send because it's going to be a little radical. Send it. Send it. Yeah, I'm going to send it. Um, I didn't want to sleep tonight anyway. Okay. <laughs> it's going to offend some people in the churches because there, there are some people who follow some prophetic ministries and some people have told me to listen to these things and I go listen to it and I'm like, holy cow, that's not of God. Anyway, that's as far as I'll go with that. For now. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, 
He will keep my word. Guys, how plain can you be? He's saying, how are you going to reveal yourself to, to the world? And he says, well, here, here's how. If this person over here obeys me, I'm going to manifest myself to them. This person over here doesn't, they're not going to get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Random points. And it says, and my father will love him and we, we will come to him and make our home with him. Guys, how could Jesus even say this if the law had been taken away? If the law has been taken away, what the church does is says, well, when it says we'll keep his word, it just means to believe on Jesus. That's it. That's, that's keeping God's word. No. That doesn't fit the context of, you know, umpteen verses I could give you, does it? So, I think this is why we read in Revelation that Satan goes after, it says, the rest of her offspring, the woman's offspring, and it says those who keep the commandments of God. And that's what Revelation says. The Trinity wants to live in you. So guys, we've seen some differences. The law, this, I know it sounds like I thought we were in Hebrews. Well, we are because I, I have to really expose what Hebrews is talking about. When he's talking about there's a new law, this is what he's talking about. When he says there's a new temple, what is he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, you had this tabernacle for a while, then Solomon built the, the temple, and then later, you know, after the Babylonians destroyed it, they came back and they built another one, and then Herod kind of added on to it. So we've had the tabernacle, then Solomon's temple, and then later another one, which en ends up being called Herod's temple because Herod added on to it. So really, though, as far as temples go, not tabernacle, we've had two. Today... There is a lot of talk about the third temple. A lot of talk in Christianity about the third temple. And I think, frankly, it's all because we're not thinking in the spiritual. There's a veil there a little bit. Under the new covenant, Hebrews said, we are that covenant. It's not just Hebrews, a lot of verses. But what I want you to understand is a covenant not only requires a law, you have to have a law with a covenant. You have to have a priest with a covenant. You also have to have a temple. Jesus and, and us. Yep. Yep. So, can you see how the new covenant, it isn't out of the blue, new? It's just a transferring of things locations, even in the temple. So, to dissect this a little bit here, Ezekiel, Exodus 25, verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. This is when God is telling them to build a tabernacle. Why? So that he would live among them. By the way, that's just what we just saw here, right? When, um, oops, I'm going the wrong direction here. We will come to him and make our home with him. There at the end. 2 Corinthians 6.16 6, 
What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, remember the temple, the tabernacle, they all had to be holy. They had to be purified. They had to be clean because God couldn't walk among unholiness. That's why ultimately God dwelled kind of in the most holy place and above the most holy place because you had to have these priests who had been purified to even get in there. Nobody else could go in because they would defile it. Well, guys, now that we are the temple and you're going to go and live a, a godless life, you're going to go be partying and getting drunk and, and you know, doing all drugs or whatever the case might be, watching pornography. Do you really think that God's going to want to dwell among that kind of unholiness in your temple? Do you think he's really going to manifest himself to you if that's the life you're leading? I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but if that's what you do, you don't try to clean your temple out? You really think God's going to be able to walk among you that way? Now, again, I also understand, under the new, we have to realize there's no condemnation. But, there is still unholiness. Okay? So, Leviticus 26.11, I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you, and be your God, and you shall be my people. The whole purpose of the temple and tabernacle was so that God could dwell with and in, well, with you at, at that point. But now under the new, and he makes you, the whole purpose of making you a temple is so that he can dwell and walk with you. That's the purpose. Now, in the old covenant, you had to come to that temple mandatory three times a year. Okay, uh, Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles. What was the other one? Passover, Feast of Tabernacles. It's Shavuot. Shavuot. Yeah, Pentecost, yep. So um, those three times. Under the new covenant, we're that temple, and it's 24-7. I'd call that better. I thought it was just Christmas and Easter. Yeah. Well, we are that temple. Again, can God change that and say, okay, I'm done with this temple, now you are, without giving you an indication that that was going to happen? No. So I guarantee you in the law that everybody wants to throw away, there's going to be a verse that's going to tell you that this is going to happen. And I'll show that to you in a moment. Note that 2 Corinthians here, chapter 6, it is also validating the Leviticus covenant. Just in a new way. That it didn't go away, it just changed its location again. Like I've been saying over and over. But you want to talk about reading the Old Covenant and the Old Testament with new glasses? I hope this is helping you do that. The entire New Testament is based on the Old. As we've been going through Hebrews, I think you can see time and time and time again, he is just pulling from what the law 
and the prophets said. And so for us to say that that's wrong and done and obsolete is just improper. Also note that in Corinthians here, who is he speaking to? Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles. Uncircumcised Gentiles. That's a big deal here. That in itself is new. But he also talked about that in the Old Testament too. Hosea, many other places. They, those who are not my people will call, be called my people. I will call them who are you know, not mine, my own, basically. Well, <laughs> let me go here and take you to Ezekiel and show you that this was kind of prophesied that we would be the temple. Ezekiel 11, verse 16 says this, Thus says the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. And I will give you the land of Israel, and they will go there, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. This is all speaking about this prophesied new covenant. And it says, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, I'm going to be a little sanctuary for them. Guys, he's saying Gentiles even are going to become a little, that he will give them a little sanctuary. He becomes that sanctuary for us. They will go there. They will take away all its detestable things. Its abominations. And when they take away the detestable things, the abominations, the ungodliness, the uncleanliness, the unholiness, then I will give them one heart, one spirit. So that's what we're seeing. Last slide here, Isaiah 33 verse 20. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. What do you think that's talking about? Us. Guys, there has never been a temple or tabernacle that that's happened outside of what the new covenant's talking about in us. Now, again, we're going to next week, or, uh, boy, I hate to do this, time on it. I'm going to be gone next week. Oh. I might... Noah, Noah. I'll explain what I'm going to do. Soon, we're going to be talking about this even deeper. We're going we're gonna to take a couple of weeks to look at this third temple. Because it is a big deal. And a lot of the Jews today, <laughs> as a Christian, we, you can go to the Temple Institute in Israel. They're trying to rebuild this third temple. And when you ask them, what are you going to do when the Antichrist desecrates it? Because this is what Daniel talks about. This is what Matthew 24 says. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, 
let the reader understand. Most Christians say, yeah, see, the third temple is going to be desecrated by the Antichrist because of those verses. But there is a large group of Jews out there that are running the Temple Institute, by the way. Their answer is, it's never going to be desecrated. Why? The prophet said that. Uh, so if we're the Temple, then that's when we get our heads chopped off. <laughs> not always but my point is this can you see the veil that remains on their eyes yeah. they're looking at this verse as a physical temple the third temple that's going to be built that will never be desecrated that's not the point this is talking about the new covenant when Yeshua makes us that temple and our cords are never going to be removed or our stakes will never be removed. So what is the abomination of desecration? In well, I think that there will be, on an earthly sense, there, the Antichrist will do that to the physical temple. So there is going to be a third temple. I think there will be a physical third temple, but that's a man-made thing, not a God-made God thing. God has made the third temple already, folks. I'm looking at it. Yeah. And what does he say about it? It is not going to be desecrated. The Spirit lives in you. That's new, folks. And that's awesome. That's, that should give you joy, peace, praise. Because... This is a promise of God. You can take it to the bank. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, we will um, talk more about this because th this goes way too deep. And I think you're really going to like some of the things that are going to be there because, guys, there's... This goes far deeper than what we've talked about here tonight with this third temple and even desecrations that may be going on to the temple that's there right now, you know, or the temple mount, I should say. Okay, so kind of cool stuff ahead. But with that, we're going to close just letting you have that promise and to be thinking, wow, so God Hebrews, wants to dwell in holiness. Was that Hebrews 9 verse 1? No, we're not going to cover another verse in Hebrew until we're done looking at this old new. And that's going to take a, a couple, two, three weeks yet to just show you what Hebrews was talking about there in chapter 8, the first 13 verses that we've been looking at. So, so expect to be done by Hebrews chapter 8, part F. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, let's... Uh, 2021. By November. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. What happens in November? Yeah. The calendar gets exploded. That's all I know. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, I just want to praise you for just what a, what a wonderful covenant that you have made with us to, to remove the condemnation, to, to live in us, that you might dwell in us. Father, we just pray that this temple, because of your spirit, would remain holy and cleansed and pure. 
And it does because of you. Because the condemnation has been removed. So Lord, just make us mindful of that. And that we should be watching what we're putting into this temple. Through our eyes, through our ears, through our mouth. That, that this is an important thing. And we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to you. And so just give us wisdom and discernment and understanding. Let us look at your word with an unveiled face that we might see the glory of your word, the glory of your promises. And Lord, we just ask that you would come. Come, Lord Jesus. Take us to to the place that you have prepared that we might see you in your full glory that we might be in our full glory. And thank you for this time and the people who come. Bless them as they study your word, as they go home here tonight. Watch over and protect. And may you just continue to reveal yourself in deeper and deeper ways. Manifest yourself as you have promised. In Jesus' name, the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen.